The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Adam Minter. He is the author of a book called Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. So, Adam, I want to know what got you interested in the secondhand world, because you've been in this world for a while, right? Yeah, I mean, in one sense, I've been in it literally my whole life. My great-grandfather, when he uh, came to the States, um, he wanted to be in show business, but you know he had no background in it and uh, didn't didn't really speak English. He didn't uh, he didn't have a formal education, so he started junking in Texas and made his way up to Minnesota and and started a small scrapyard there. And you know I grew up in that small scrapyard, you know recycling. And if you're in the recycling business at that small scale. Um, you're in the second hand because you're not just getting, you know, bits of pipe, but you're getting, you know, little bronze statuettes. And, and my grandmother and I would go out and look for stuff in our, our small warehouse, you know, bits and pieces that we could take home or, or reuse. And so in that sense, I mean, from the time I was a toddler, my earliest memories are, you know, recovering and reusing and, and being in second hand. That's very cool. And I noticed that your grandma said in the book that antiques just aren't what they used to be. Do you think there's going to be like a renaissance in quality goods? Or do you think there's kind of like no end in sight for this throwaway culture? I'm sure that listeners have noticed that clothing has deteriorated in quality. I certainly have noticed that over the last few decades. And I I think your grandma's noticed that too. And uh, you go through that a little bit in the book. So do you think do you think we're on this like bad track to things getting worse or maybe better? Well, I think, I mean, I guess it depends on, on where you are in terms of your geography. And mm-hmm. and I think, you know, in, in developed countries, I think in the United States, I think we're seeing a bit in Japan and in Europe and in Oceania with Australia and New Zealand, where consumers are starting to circle back to wanting to have things that last a little bit longer. Obviously, it's not everybody, and we have to be careful how we generalize. But, but I do think as sustainability becomes more important to people, and just as a basic pocketbook issue, you're better off buying something, you know, that can last 100 washes than one something that lasts three. You know what I mean? Yeah. But on, on the flip side of that is most of the world is not part of the affluent West, you know, affluent Japan, and we are in a world of consumers, billions of them just emerging and having their first chance to go shopping. They don't have the level of affluence that somebody in Canada or the United States has, but they want the opportunity to consume. And so a lot of them, and I've I've been living in developing Asia for almost two decades now, and I see it every day, you know, they want the chance to buy, and they're going to buy the cheap thing. But on the other hand, the optimistic side of that is, is that, you know, in a lot of emerging markets, especially in Africa, where I traveled for this book, you do see people preferring secondhand um, that comes from the United States and Canada because if it makes it to Africa, uh, it's gone through, you know, people who pick through it and make sure it's a durable good that people in Africa would buy. And so you often find in Africa, people prefer the secondhand goods because they've sort of been massively pre-tested, if you will, mm-hmm. and they're going to last longer than that cheap new garment from that's made in a factory in East Asia. Mm-hmm. But I think that the the cheap stuff is coming into developing markets, right? Which is kind of like a danger. To oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's coming in very quickly. And it's, it's a growing part of the consumer experience there. You know, the amazing thing is, it's now gotten to the point, you know, and you see it in, in West Africa, where I've spent a lot of time, where the cost of production of these new cheap goods out of East Asia you know, whether it be a computer or a garment, is now cheaper than the stuff coming in secondhand from, say, Europe yeah. um, or North America. And, you know, when that happens, it's very, very hard for the durable secondhand good that will last longer than the new piece to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but let me give you the optimistic side of that as well. And, and one thing, 
you know, I very much observe in my time in, in Asia is that the consumer experience has been turbocharged. So it took us in North America, you know, arguably, you know, 150, 200 years to get to the point where we're really thinking about sustainable consumption. Mm-hmm. And in these emerging markets, they're getting there in a matter of decades. It's been accelerated. And so, you know, I'm very optimistic that we're going to see a movement towards sustainable consumption in these countries, but but it's going to take a bit of time yet. And you mentioned Lululemon, and I don't know if you're listening and you've worn Lululemon before, but I've worn quite a bit of it, and I have tank tops that are, oh gosh, maybe 12 years old or so. And Mm -hmm. I like them when I travel because I know this sounds gross, but you can get like a couple days of wear out of it. So if I wore like a cotton t-shirt, you know, if I'm traveling and then the second day, it looks like a rag. (laughs) If I put it on again, I have to wash it. But the the Lululemon, it's it's like better quality. Sure, the tank top is like $90 or something, which sucks. But when you factor that in over the, you know, maybe two decades that I have it, then it starts to, you know, you spread the price over those two years and it, 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 it definitely is worth it. And the quality remains. So it doesn't look gross if I have to wear it two days. And 10 years later, it doesn't look gross either. So uh, these brands are are good. And I I know Patagonia is really into trying to make their, their clothing last and trying to like take it back and stuff. So there are these brands, but then like you're saying, you have to pay more for them, but then you know that they're going to make it through this secondhand cycle that is very beneficial for yeah. the environment and for people, right? Like the people are are making money. Um, I've been to Uganda, so I've seen the markets there and they're amazing. Okay. And I, I love that it promotes entrepreneurs. So people are kind of making yeah. their own money rather than going to work for the rich guy in a factory who, you know, might not care about your safety or your benefits or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the really exciting things that I found, you know, exploring the secondhand world all over the world is that it's it's sort of a vector, if you will, a means to to create entrepreneurs. I mean, all you really need to start a business in the United States, as far as I'm concerned, is a large shopping bag and a Goodwill, and you can go in there and pick out stuff and go and, and flip it on eBay. You know, and that model, to a certain extent, is repeated not on eBay, per se, but around the world. If you go to Uganda, you'll see the small secondhand clothing traders all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, instead of having a truck, they may have a backpack filled with clothing that they went and picked through at some larger distributor who maybe got their clothes from a larger distributor. And this tree of entrepreneurship um, is is really exciting. And, it, it, you know, it's such a positive thing in, in so many ways and such, so much more positive than the supply chain we have for new goods. And I think the other thing that I think is really exciting about it, especially in Africa, is that it's a vehicle for female entrepreneurship. I'm sure you saw it yeah. in Uganda, but the yeah. secondhand clothing trade is dominated by women and even even to be more specific, by, by mothers, you know, who are able to do it as sort of the sidekick from they're raising children, or the raising children is decided from from doing the, the secondhand trade. But but it's really an incredible vehicle for entrepreneurship for women. Yeah, I saw that down in the Amazon too. Actually, so there'll be people in the markets, and they spread out their blanket on the ground, and then they've got all their clothing out. And that I think was all women. I don't think I saw any men doing that. So that's a good point, actually, that I never thought about. There's a market that's springing up too in Canada. So I went to a Kingston fashion show in Ontario and mm-hmm. there were women, young women doing exactly what you're saying that they're doing in Africa, but they are going through the secondhand industry and picking out pieces that they love themselves and then reselling them. And it makes you like a, not a designer, but I don't know what you'd call them, a finder maybe. And then you can kind of like trust them. You can can follow them on Instagram. You can watch for their pieces, you know, and then if your style matches their style, then you don't have to spend all that time searching through Value Village or or Goodwill. You can kind of just go to that person because you know that they have the style that you want, right? So I'm sure that happens in, in all the other countries as well. Sure. You know, and it's, and it's an online phenomenon, obviously. In developed countries, whether it be in Japan or, or in North America with Poshmark, which I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with, where, where you have people who are going out, uh, mostly women, going to thrift stores or wherever else they source their clothes, 
And then they're styling people really from their accounts. They're saying, here, I can put together this outfit for you. I'm a business reporter at heart. It's a, in, in my business reporting parlance, I'd call it, you know, a value add. So they're not only pulling the clothes for you, but they're, they're actually putting together styles that you may like. Yeah. And, and again, that's just such an exciting evolution of secondhand. Mm-hmm, yeah, there's a there's a girl that has a company. If you're listening in the Belleville Bay Quinney area uh, laundry club, she's she's doing that. So yeah, it's it's really cool to see these things popping up everywhere. And so we have this process. So the Western world, they buy these clothes that were probably made in Asia anyway. It's such a global movement, mm-hmm. right? So clothes are made in Asia from who knows where they're sourced, probably there, I would think. And then they're sent mm-hmm. to North America or Europe. They are worn for a few years, and then they go to places like Africa and, and Asia, and they are hand-sorted, they're picked, they are, I don't know if they'd be cleaned or if they're sent to market, and then they're sent to entrepreneurs, and then they're sent to other people who wear them and get a lot of value out of them. And of course, there is an ending to this cycle. And before that, we get into rags, right? So you kind of talked a lot about mm-hmm. rags. So I've talked about this before. I'm a huge fan of rags, and I have a hierarchy of rags. <laughs> so depending on what I need really? to... Really? Tell me. Yeah, like depending on what I need to clean. And I also noticed that you said something about jeans, that jeans are really tough to reuse. And I have some sure. car hearts, like a piece of one, and I use that for scrubbing my bathtub because it's that like, it's tough, right? Like it, it, it can be used as a bit right. of a scrubber. So there is a little bit of use for those tough, tough things as rags. Um, but tell us a little bit about the rag industry because I, I found that as a rag person <laughs> kind of fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually, you could say it's the original recycling industry, industrialized recycling industry. When the Industrial Revolution started, you suddenly had all this excess textiles in people's homes. And, and once the clothes wore out, there was the question of what to do with them. And, and, and the perfect thing to do with them was to cut them up and use them to wipe off the grease on the machines that were producing new textiles. And that actually emerged you know, very early on in the Industrial Revolution in the early 19th century. Um, By the early 20th century, there were just in the United States 26 industrial scale. And we're talking hundreds of employees each, rag factories in the United States. You know, rags, old clothes would be delivered. People would sort and grade them and cut up the clothing into rags that could then be sold to factories. They could be sold to bars and restaurants. They could be sold to hotels, anywhere you need to basically wipe something down. Mm-hmm. And even though, you know, we it's, it's not very well known today, it continues to be a very large industry. The best estimate is that approximately 30% of the used clothing in the United States, and I'm, I'm sorry, I just had the U.S. figure, but I, I think it's probably pretty much similar to Canada because the clothes flow back and forth, about 30% are turned into rats on an annual basis. And you could probably argue that it's higher than that because, you know, maybe a garment gets cycled through the thrift cycle a few times, but ultimately that garment is going to end up a rag as well. Mm -hmm. And there are factories still in the United States and increasingly overseas that do just what the ones did, you know, in 19th century uh, England. They buy the clothes or the sheets and bed sheets, you know, the textiles go beyond just clothing. Uh, hospital bed sheets and, and hotel bed sheets and linens are a big part of the rag industry, too. Mm-hmm. They buy them, they grade them, they separate them, and then they cut them and then package them and send them off to everybody from, you know, painting companies, because painting companies, they sell rags. If you're painting, you're going to be wiping the wall as well. So oil and gas companies, the bars and restaurants the hardware stores where people can buy them for whatever they want to use them for. Mm-hmm. So it's a massive business, and it's, it's a wonderful business because if this, if this final use wasn't there, um, they'd be ending up in the landfill quicker. Yeah, exactly. It's good to keep them out. And it, it will save forests, like instead of paper towels, right? So it's, it's good right, for that too. Right, right. Yeah. These secondhand rags or used rags, they compete with new rags, with synthetic materials that are manufactured that – supposedly absorb better and are, are marketed as a better absorbent than a uh, old t-shirt rag or an old terry cloth roll rag. From from my perspective, uh, you know, I've I've been cutting up clothes and my I mean I'm just following what my mother taught me. She cut up clothes for as well as far back as I can remember. Me too. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's just the more sustainable option. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's just where it goes, right? Instead of throwing it in the garbage. And we'll send everything to secondhand. Like I have a a child and they just grow so quickly. It's crazy how many different clothes they need. So it's good to put those back in the market. But kids are also really hard on clothes too. So if, you know, if they get holes in the knees, I've cut them off for shorts before. Uh, We don't usually like go to town with like cut off shorts. But if if my kids are on the house, you'd wear them. But uh, then, yeah, if, if they're filled with holes or they're totally stained, you know, that they wouldn't be good in the secondhand market, then yeah, we just cut them up. And there's all different things you can use them for in the home. Absolutely. And I I have a little bucket in my pantry in my kitchen. And I keep that little bucket in the very bottom. So that if I wipe up anything with a rag, I just put that in the bucket and then I wait until there's a load. But with that, you kind of have to be careful of smells. Uh, So if you leave something really wet and gross, it'll really stink. So in that case, I just put it out on my deck um, for the day until it's dry, and then I'll put it in the bucket. And I find that helps with the smell a lot. So if you're having problems with rags being gross and smelly, um, that helps. And then, right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so another thing I found, actually, I was kind of disappointed to read this because I've been thinking a lot lately about wool and that I would like to see Canada have more of a wool industry because you can kind of put it in the compost, right? That. I, I would assume it would, right. it would just go back. But there's actually a big problem with wool. Yes, there is. Well, one, um, wool clothing, I mean, it's wonderful in the winter. I come from a, a cold place um, in Minnesota, so I, I, I love my wool as well. But once that wool hits the secondhand markets, the actual places for it to go are, are really limited. And and the reason is is that most of the world's markets for secondhand clothing are hot places. like. Uh, India, like Pakistan, and like Africa. And as you can imagine, there's very limited demand in those locations uh, for wool clothing. So what has traditionally happened is that the wool garments went to a place in northern India called Panapat, which I visit in the book. And in Panapat, the wool was basically uh, is ripped apart uh, the individual fibers are recovered, and they turn it into a fabric, a rough wool fabric called shoddy. You know, we all know the word shoddy. We refer to shoddy quality. And shoddy itself is a sort of a low-quality wool. And what it has been primarily used for for decades is making blankets to be used in relief operations, meaning if there's a big earthquake somewhere, you know, a hurricane and the Red Cross comes in, they would bring in blankets that had been made from recycled wool in Panapot. Mm-hmm. And that's what the people in these disaster zones would be getting. But over the last decade, the shoddy blanket has been losing out once again to new. And what's replacing it are polar fleece blankets, you know, which is a synthetic fiber, which was pioneered in the United States, but Chinese and now the Indians figured out how to make it very cheaply. And that is basically extinguishing most of the market for shoddy. So it used to be that somebody like the Red Cross would buy tens of thousands of relief blankets from Panapot from recycled wool at a time. Now, all of those purchases are going to Chinese factories making polar fleece from petrochemicals. Mm -hmm. And that means that there is less and less of a market for wool, so uh, and more and more of a market for unrecyclable polar fleece. So it's a real problem, and what it's doing is it's driving down the price of used wool, People in Panapot, you know, there used to be about 600 factories buying used wool. Now they're down to about 50. And if there isn't somebody buying it, it's not going to go there. And without other options and places for that wool to go, that wool in many cases is either going to end up uh, in a landfill, an incinerator, or in a very best case scenario, occasionally it can be used as stuffing in certain kinds of products, like some types of furniture. Mm -hmm. Um, But as you know, wool doesn't make for a very good wiping rag. So there's actually, even though it's a natural fiber, there's right now we're sort of entering into a potential crisis of what to do with all our excess wool clothing. Yikes. Yeah. So that really kind of turned my, my view on things. Like I'm not, I don't want to be a protectionist or anything, but I just, I think a lot about how Canada can revive some of their industries and we can have more entrepreneurship. And I've heard from a sheep farmer that they can barely sell their wool because the price is just out. Yeah. No, Nobody's buying it here because we get all our clothes from different countries. So I was just thinking like, wouldn't it be great if you know, somebody was spinning the wool and then somebody else was making really high-end clothing so you can have a, you know, a, a nice Canadian-made 
and grown sweater for like $150 or something. But I thought that it was right. much more sustainable than, you know, we're having this big problem of them ending up in piles in Asia where maybe there's not a market for them anymore. I just never thought about yeah. that. And again, yeah. And it comes back to something we, we, we talked about a little bit earlier, which is, you know, the quality of the wool. I, you know, I've been to Panapat. Um, I've, you know, I've walked around the sorting warehouses and the wool you see there is wool, but these are not the highest quality sweaters. You sort of can understand how they ended up at a Goodwill. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is not stuff that people, this is not going to be the, the sweater that was passed on from your mom or from your grandmother. It's, it's the sweater you got at, you know, so many of these are the sweaters you got at Forever 21, you know, or uh, the department store that doesn't necessarily sell the highest quality stuff. And so it comes back to the solution to a lot of this is we just, we all need to start demanding and frankly, being willing to pay for a little bit better quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's really tough to do because, you know, people don't want to pay for better quality if they don't know, like people are so busy, right? Like they're, they're living their own lives. They're, they're doing their job and they're surviving, you know, they don't have time to like investigate, you know, where their product started and where it was made and all these things. So it's, uh, it's tough. So you talked a little bit about like how opposition to globalization is a threat to the secondhand world. In affluent countries like Canada and the United States, um, we consume a lot and we throw away a lot. Yeah. And, you know, and that we simply generate more stuff, more secondhand stuff, even more good secondhand stuff than we are capable as consumers of, of reusing on our own. You know, it's just the nature of our consumption. So unless we are willing to export that stuff, willing to allow people in other countries to take it and reuse it, sometimes in ways that we may not even feel comfortable with, it's not going to get reused. Okay, so that's one part that I didn't understand near the end of the book is you were saying that Mm -hmm. people need to be more open to letting people take their stuff, right? But but is there resistance to that? Like, are there people in the world who would rather throw out their stuff or something than than let the secondhand industry take it? Believe it or not, yes, there are. Um, Really, and and in the two big areas that I look at in the book, uh, you know, it's it's surprising, isn't it? But uh, first, yeah. there's been quite a bit of opposition in the U.K. and even in corners of North America to the idea of exporting secondhand clothes to Africa, because there seems to be this mistaken impression that if uh, Africa is using used clothes, it's not going to manufacture its own clothes, and that used clothes are the primary culprit for Africa's uh, new clothing manufacturing industry shutting down. And, you know, that makes a certain amount of sense. I mean, logically, intuitively, we'd say, well, yeah, if people are using secondhand clothes, they're not going to be making new clothes. But but actually, if you dive into the data, and I did in the book, Africa's new clothing industry didn't die because of secondhand clothing. It was because uh, Africa's new clothing industry lost out to East Asia's manufacturers who flooded their markets in the same way that they flooded North America's uh, markets. Um, secondhand clothes have, you know, are completely irrelevant to that discussion. So when you see, um, you know, people saying, well, secondhand clothes, it's going to prevent people from manufacturing and developing their own industries in Africa. It's it's just not the case. And frankly, from my point of view, if you are worried, of, you know, about the long-term uh, interests of, of, you know, African countries, I, I think their long-term interest is to reuse stuff, whether it's ours or theirs. Mm-hmm. And, and the other opposition, and, and it's more familiar to people, but they're there has been opposition to the export of electronics goods like phones and like uh, computers to developing countries with the mistaken impression that, you know, when these these articles, these these devices arrive in these developing nations, um, they're going to be recycled in, you know, improper ways. They're going to be set on fire and uh, basically disposed of in trash dumps. But, but if you go there, you'll find that What's happening with these devices is oftentimes they are exported, not in the best working condition from countries like Canada. And when they arrive in Ghana, and I document this in the new book, they're often uh, refurbished and repaired there. And they get much longer lives in Africa than they ever would, say, in Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, What happens to them after they can't be used anymore? You know, they don't have the recycling facilities we do in developed countries, but those will come in time. But if the goal is to make things last as long as possible, then you certainly want to have that old iPhone 5 that isn't up to date in Canada anymore, used by somebody in a country where 
it might be viewed as, as a very good option that they can use for several years uh, until it doesn't work anymore. But but a lot of folks, and especially lots of manufacturers of electronics, um, have a real problem with that. And it's no accident that you see companies like Samsung and Apple uh, opposing the export of electronics into developing countries because that's competition for them. Yeah. And it's such a skill, too. Like, I couldn't fix an iPhone. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to repair electronics. Oh, but, and... but you could. That's, you think that's so? the really exciting thing is uh, I've done it. I mean, you can change the battery in your phone. And there's instructions online where you can do it. And, and I, I recommend everybody do it. I mean, especially, you know, if you're sort of if you're into zero waste and that, mm-hmm. you know, being able to fix your own stuff, it's, it's such an exciting thing to do. And it's, it's, the instructions are all there on, online. If you have screwdrivers, you can do it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, so I want to talk about the like cultural differences too, because I thought that that was really interesting when you throw these in there in the book. Like, uh, there was this one part where I think it was an African maybe that pulled out like a lacy bra and was like, nobody here would wear this and like <laughs> threw it in a pile. Right. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. So yeah. were there some, some big interesting differences that you found between like Asian and American culture or like Mexican and American culture? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many. Well, I mean, that took place in Benin in West Africa in a used clothing sorting warehouse. And, and it was a, it's a person who asked that I not use his name. So I call him Mr. A in the book. And he took me into the back room of a uh, of his sorting warehouse. People are sorting through clothes that have been imported a lot from Canada, actually. And in a closet back there, a large closet, he had bags of stuff that he simply couldn't sell. And some of it was obvious. I mean, you know, in the loads that he'd ordered from Canada, some people had thrown in sweaters. And, you know, Benin is very high. You're not going to be able to sell a sweater there. Yeah. And uh, but, but he started going through uh, what he called the dainties for me. And he pulled out, you know, a bra. And he said, yeah, African women wouldn't wear this. We have fashion in Africa. This is unfashionable, <laughs> you know. And, and, and it, But it was, it was a really wonderful moment as well because – I think we, you know, we tend to think in developed countries that, you know, well, they're poor, we're donating the stuff to them, they'll take it. And it doesn't work that way. I mean, they, you know, they, you know, folks in developing countries have, you know, a sense of style and, and they have their own dignity and desires and ways and wants to how to present themselves. And and, and I, I included that moment because he was sort of conveying that to me, yeah. you know, don't don't take us for your charity cases. We We have fashion too. And and African women have fashion, you know, and, and that's what he was saying there. So it was a really great moment and a reminder of, in some ways, how the cultures are similar. We just have different tastes and clothes. But, you know, in other ways, that I found cultural differences. One of the big differences I've found in the world of secondhand uh, between sort of North America and Anglo-America and the rest of the world is we tend to think of uh, when we have excess stuff, we tend to donate it, you know, to the Goodwills and the Salvation Armies or in the UK, the Oxfam. And and that's a very unusual model for dealing with excess stuff. And most other parts of the world, including Japan, which I cover quite extensively in the book, um, you sell it. And you may only get a few pennies for it, but you sell it. And that has all kinds of different consequences. But one is I think people become much more emotionally invested in the stuff that they donate. Because when you donate something, you know, you sort of expect it to do good works. Um, and so people can become quite angry in North America and the UK if they feel that the stuff they donated hasn't been put to a proper use. But you find in most other parts of the world where used stuff is sold rather than donated, that people, you know, once that financial transaction takes place, People are like, okay, you bought it, it's yours. I'm not going to worry about what happens to it. Mm-hmm. And I tried to bring some of that out in the book. I think that when people buy something for themselves, they may treat it better too than if it was just... <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess it's better on both sides. Yeah. When yeah, you... I mean, that's been a, you know, sort of a theme of my work, my previous book too on recycling is that, you know, I, I, you know, I think the donation model is wonderful, but, but I do find, you know, when, when money changes hands in whichever direction it is, sometimes it makes it easier. You know, people will take better care of things, um, but they also are more willing to pass on responsibility in a good sort of positive way. Yeah. And your other book was Junkyard Planet. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's similar to the the secondhand book as well? Like it's a... Well, uh, Junkyard 
it's very much a travelogue. It, the Junkyard plant was focused on literally recycling. So, I mean, the stuff in your recycling bin and, and stuff that's recycled in, you know, in, uh, you know, automobile junkyards. And uh, it's a bit of a travelogue as well from China to North America primarily. Very cool. Do you know those machines, the coffee machines called Keurigs? They're like those instant coffee? Keurigs, yeah, the pot. Yeah. Coffee pot machine. You know, I I spent so much time there, and I did not, actually. I didn't see any Keurigs in, uh, in West Africa at all, now that you bring it up. I'm just Interesting. sort of racking my brain, and I no, I did not. Um, yeah. The pods have not gone in there yet. But do they drink a lot of coffee in Ghana? Maybe that's why. They do. They okay. do. I think it's, I think, so I just have this theory that obviously isn't proven or anything. I just, I've, I've heard mm. that the Kureggs are not very good quality and that they break easily. And I think, you know, probably mm-hmm. that Kureggs are like very bad for the environment because all those plastic pods aren't recyclable. So there's just been so many and John oh, yeah. Kureg like regrets making the machine in the first place. And there's sort of like these problems with them. So I just wondered if any of those machines are actually making it through, like maybe they're all just going to American landfill. I don't know. What I would say on that, there's a handful of sort of higher end shopping malls in Accra, the capital of Ghana. And that's where I would expect to see the machine sold new and the pods. And I never saw the pods for carrots or any of the others, the Nespresso or anything like that sold there. And I think it's because there's just not much, there's not the level of affluence to support buying those pods. I mean, compared to making mm-hmm. your own at home, it's a really economically illogical way to get your coffee, you know, especially if you're on a somewhat limited income. So to send the uh, the machines to Ghana or West Africa for scrapping doesn't make much sense. Also because you only send recycling to places where there's a lot of manufacturing so they can use the metals again. And Ghana doesn't have a lot of manufacturing. Um, The old machines, and I have seen this, the old coffee machines, the market for those is is scrap metal and scrap plastics is actually in China. And that's Mm -hmm. where they would go if they'd been broken. And you actually see some new ones being sold in China. I've seen them in shopping malls there. But just from a price point, it doesn't make a lot of sense, pod coffee, whether it's Keurig or anybody else in West Africa. They'll they'll make their own with their own pot. And, and it's fantastic coffee you'll get there, too. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know what made me think of the Keurig question is because I actually wrote this down on page 126 of the book. I think it was someone that was working across the Mexican-American border, and he said, if you make donuts, you probably wouldn't buy this. And it was a, a donut maker. And that kind of made me wonder... Yeah. About like if you yeah, if you're making donuts and maybe you're not this like very affluent person, you would just make them normally like in a deep fryer or something like you wouldn't want a fancy machine if you already know how to make donuts. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think also uh, what he was thinking, that's a, that's a guy who, again, one of the other characters in the book whose real name I can't use, I call him Shoe Guy. I think also <laughs> what he was thinking is that, you know, a donut making machine is probably slower than doing it on your own. Um, especially one that a consumer one, you know what I mean, that would maybe end up at uh, at a goodwill. Um, that's probably going to be a lot slower than uh, than you know doing it by hand, especially if you're making a lot of donuts, say for your donut shop in Nogales, Mexico. So it probably it probably isn't very quick. I mean, and and you know the kind of donut I you know I don't know are there donut machines up? You know, I certainly for consumers, but uh, you know if there's industrial grade ones, I mean that would be another thing altogether that could take dozens of them at once, but I don't think you would find that at the uh, at the Goodwill. Yeah, I was thinking maybe it was just like a household one because it's amazing to me how many yeah. items you can buy for your kitchen that you don't need, like all these fancy like things to chop up your vegetables mm-hmm. when all you need is a knife. Like you don't need all these machines, you know, right. just chop up a bagel and right, then, right. Like, a carrot thing and an onion thing and like <laughs> they're all different. <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring that up. I was with my son uh, the other day, uh, he's four, and he loves to go to hardware stores and kitchen supply stores. And we were in a mall the other day, uh, and we walked into a kitchen supply store. And as we were walking through it, you know, he was asking me, what is this? What is that? And we came across, what was it? I can't remember what it was. It was something. And he said, why do you need this? You <laughs> know, and, and I was like, yeah, you probably use it twice a year if <laughs> you and then cleaning it would be such a pain in the neck. You, you'd never want to. You wouldn't want to use it for another six months. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that with my food processor, it's just 
so annoying to like set up and clean and stuff that I just chop things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I was I bread I would, maker. Yeah, the other yeah, I have a bread maker because I have these like problems with my wrists for kneading, but I'm kind of getting my kid to knead it oh. sometimes. And I'm actually really bad at breaking baking bread, but I don't want to buy bread and I eat it every morning for breakfast. Right. So I do make it, but it's not very good. <laughs> so bread is like a nemesis right. of mine because I don't want to buy it in the plastic bags, right? But yeah. Sure. Uh, so you also talked about furnishing. So I just want to give the listeners this crazy number. So Americans tossed out 25 billion pounds of furnishings? 25 billion pounds. That's the most recent figure that we have, which was uh, 2015. Yeah. That's how much they tossed that year. So is that like... Uh, which is, I mean, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? Is it like curtains and like rugs? No, no. I mean, we're talking things like Bookshelves, For... like sofas, oh, like, yeah. um, beds, like wardrobes. You know, I've been in this, you know, around junk and stuff my whole life. So if I get a chance to go to a landfill of any kind or, you know, anywhere there's junk, uh, you know, I'd rather go there to, you know, see that than a beach, to be perfectly honest with you, just because I'm so interested in what people yeah. toss out. That's and cool. whenever you guy go, I mean, I'm always astounded at how much, you know, there's a sofa there. There's a broken bookshelf. And it's, it's just an amazing amount. And one of the things, you know, and I, I get it a little bit in the book is, you know, you don't see the beautiful old heavy oak furniture, you know, from the 1950s in these dumps. Thank, thank God we don't. Uh, what you're seeing is a lot of, again, what we discussed earlier, the cheap stuff, yep. you know, flat pack Ikea. Ikea you know, is essentially single-use furniture. It's hard to move because the moment you put that in a moving van, it shakes and, and it breaks. But, you know, there's other, you know, low-quality furniture, and, and that's a lot of what you see go into the landfills when we talk about that 25 billion pounds. Yeah. Like, you can't even imagine how much that is, like, how many football stadiums would no. be filled with furniture. It's like an astronomical number. That's what bothers me about waste is that I cannot wrap my head around how big of an issue it is because it's just so big. So I've actually went through three bookshelves, and I'm only 35. So... I think, so there's two problems. So one, and I think you touched on this in your book, is that people don't just get married young and live in a house for their whole life. We're moving around to different cities. We're living in apartments. We're going and going and going. So it's really hard to get that big, old, heavy bookshelf because you're going to have to move it and transport it. So instead, we buy these like little IKEA things that are cheap and light and easy. And then, of course, you know, they end up in the the trash, which is where my three bookshelves currently are, unfortunately. Um, so I think this time around, yeah. I'm going to get like a live edge, like a big piece of board and put it on my wall. And then it's going to be in that house. And if I sell that house, it'll have to go with it. And hopefully that'll be the last one if I don't move from that house. Furniture is hard. Furniture is hard. But what, one thing I, I really have tried to encourage, well, everybody I know, but especially my friends who are really into minimalism and, and zero waste and is expand their definition of single use. You know, we hear so much talk these days about single use plastics, and that yeah. usually means, say, a, a straw or a garbage bag or, or something along those lines. But, but from my perspective, and especially my experience of reporting and writing this book, the world of single use products is so much bigger than a straw. I mean, it really is an IKEA bookshelf. It really is that T-shirt that maybe only lasts realistically two or three washes. I love that people are thinking so seriously about single-use plastic. But, you know, if, if we can expand sort of our, our definition of single-use to these other objects and start treating them, I don't want to say with the same disdain, but the same caution, it can have a genuine impact not just on the environment, but also on our pocketbooks and just on our, our mm -hmm. I think, outlook on life. Yeah. So this is kind of unrelated, but related. So when I was diapering my kid, I used cloth and I paid $600 up front for cloth diapers and I barely had to buy any disposable. Sometimes you do for just like airplanes or whatever, but 600 bucks for diapers and that's it. It was an upfront cost and it saved me probably about $2,000 over time. Oh, easily. 
right? So, Easily. but but that's an issue is sometimes people can't come up with that upfront cost, but it actually would probably make sense if you couldn't come up with the $600 to like borrow it and then pay $600 plus, you know, maybe 50 bucks yeah. in interest or something and then and then save yourself over time the $2,000, right? So those upfront costs are right. are good. Uh, but my problem is that, so I'm on the same page as you, I want quality and I'm willing to pay more for them because I know it'll save me money over time. But the problem is I can't even find quality items anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's really the challenge, isn't it? In Malaysia, I, I can guarantee you we have a harder time finding quality here than you do there even, you yeah. know, and simply because the price point here, the consumer here is at a lower price point and manufacturers know how to hit that price point. But if they hit that price point, they're not necessarily making more of them than not, they're not making the best product. And so, yeah, it becomes it becomes much, much harder. I, I know exactly what you mean, and, and it's, I think it's something we all struggle with. But I tend to believe, especially in North America and other sort of affluent regions, that that's going to start changing. I mean, oh, you good. know, I, I, I spent a lot, of, I spent a lot of time now with consumer surveys and 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 looking at what consumer researchers are looking at, and consumers are starting to demand better. Good. You know, and it's not. I mean, you know, and the cool thing about it, in a way, is it's not always a matter of sustainability. It's it's a pocketbook issue. And I think and I think that's fine. I mean, you know, for me it's a sustainability issue, but but if what brings people to sustainability is the pocketbook, I got no problem with that, you know? We're all headed in the same direction one way or another. And and I think I think we're gonna start seeing that shift. You know, is it gonna be, you know, are we gonna be there in the next year or two? No. Um it's gonna take time. It took a long time to get to where we are right now. But, mm-hmm. but I sort of think that healing process is starting. So I know a guy who makes really, really good wooden furniture, like high quality, high quality wood. He's a he's a craftsman, right? And he's just making it in his garage and it's a hobby. And here's the issue is it's so expensive to live in Canada. So he's got a mortgage to pay and he has to pay his you know mm-hmm. heating bills and hydro bills and he's got to eat you know, all these things. So he needs to be making at least like three grand a month just to pay his bills. So it's like, how do you turn that hobby of making amazing furniture into a job? Like, I don't think he has the time and hands (laughs) to be making Mm -hmm. that furniture to get to that price point where he could be pulling in three grand a month to pay for his living. I think that's the big issue. And I don't really like government intervention, but Maybe, yeah, yeah, government could help somehow with subsidizing that or or something. I don't know. I don't know the answers, sure. but we're finding them out. <laughs> and, and that's right, yeah. And you know, and and for people who want to buy really great, sturdy furniture, I mean, the the secondhand shops and the antique shops are filled with it. And and the amazing thing is, there's so much of it, and it's out of fashion right now. It's competitive with new stuff, and it's competitive with the IKEA stuff. You just need a truck and a strong back to move it because that really quality furniture is heavy. I guess the last thing that I wanted to talk about is, uh, okay, am I saying this right? Dan Shari? Oh, Dan Shari, yeah. Yeah. So that's Japanese, right? Yes, it is. What exactly is that? So Dan Shari is, um, and there's, <laughs> there's a, uh, as, as, you, as you know, there's an entire chapter in the book uh, sort of that leads up to the term. Um, Danshari is is a concept that that first emerged, um, you know, about 20 years ago in Japan. It's basically just the idea of um, a concept of that sort of let go of things, severing a relationship with sort of things that aren't necessary anymore, um, and purging the clutter. And it, when you do that, uh, it gives you a sense of peace. <laughs> Danshari is a very short word for a very long concept, yeah. and it's something that the Japanese have started talking about, and the word was invented about 20 years ago, when uh, the decl- what we think of as the decluttering and minimalist movement really started to emerge in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marie Kondo was not the first, and in Japan, she's not even the most famous proponent of these ideas. Um, it, was, it was other thinkers, but that's what Donshari is, and, and, and it, it sort of was a philosophy that got people to declutter uh, with the idea that it would bring about a certain level of personal peace. Oh, cool. So kind of like the spark joy thing that Marie Kondo yeah, talks about. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really the roots of it. And and there's a very famous book in Japan called Donshari. And, 
And Marie Kondo, um, Marie Kondo, she certainly doesn't copy that, but she's very much coming from that tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the issue is when sometimes people they feel like they need to get rid of stuff right away because they're in that cleaning mood. Like I get cleaning moods. I don't know yeah. about you, but I like, I don't like to clean, don't yeah, like to clean. Yeah. And then I'm in a cleaning mood and I like, will put off other things because I want to keep that mood going. Yep. <laughs> Just clean everything. Yeah. But I call it like the purging mood for me, purging. <laughs> oh yeah. So when that happens, sometimes you want to get rid of things quickly. So you might throw them in the trash. Yeah. And also if you're moving, then you might want to throw things in the trash very quickly. So when you're downsizing right. or trying to go minimalist, it's hard to research and find out exactly where you should be putting everything. So luckily, there's some companies that are coming up that are trying to help with that, which is good to see. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that's come up in Japan with Anshari and with decluttering movement is it's not necessarily a movement about sustainability. I mean, you know, the sense of inner peace yeah. is about my inner peace. Yeah. And, and so there's been a real kind of tension there because I think especially outside of Japan people tend to think of it as sort of the zen kind of exotic environmental thing but but uh, it, it's not it's really focused on personal um, peace and so there's been some pushback in recent years saying all the stuff that you're you know sort of doing Donshari with you're decluttering you're sparking joy with you know what happens to it next and that was actually one of my inspirations for the book is I started thinking about okay you have all these people you know, uh, you know, Colin Marie in their houses, but what's happening to that stuff? Yeah. Especially, did you watch her show? I, I watched a couple episodes of it. Yeah. It's hard for me to get over here in Malaysia. We these weird licensing things with, with Netflix, but yeah, I saw it and, and I've read the book and I mean, she's so important. And then, you know, I couldn't go through a book like this without actually spending some time getting to know what Marie Kondo is all about. Yeah. In the show, you see these scenes of like, yay, happy we did it problem solved and then yeah. it'll show out on the street corner and it'll be like uh, 20 well. bags of trash and like furniture and all this stuff because for me I'm like the waste person so of course I'm thinking what is going to happen to all right. that stuff right so yeah you really get to see it on the we show think alike. Yeah. yeah 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 so if there are listeners who are interested in getting into the secondhand business do you have any advice I mean, the first thing to do, I mean, if it, if it's for your home, if it's just, you know, as somebody who wants to have more secondhand in their life, speaking of Zen, I think that it sort of goes two ways with it. If you want to buy secondhand, I mean, go and enjoy, you know, your secondhand stores, your Salvation Army, your Goodwill. But you also, at some point, you got to give back. And in that sense, I'd say when you do buy new stuff, always buy good stuff because that's stuff that can become part of the system, you know. So you always have to think of it in terms of that circularity. If you want to get into it as a business, there has never been a better time. You know, there's so many different platforms and ways to do it online. You know, I, I mentioned earlier Poshmark, um, which is this, you know, which is a great platform with small entrepreneurs. You know, get used clothes or just want to empty their own closets can find ways to do it and and sell directly to other people who, who want to buy secondhand. And there's ThreadUp. There's other sites like that. So I would say, you know, really take a look at those sites. You know, it's an old and tried uh, solution, but, you know, eBay has started so many secondhand businesses over the years that have grown into their own websites. And and just spending time on the forums at places like eBay or um, OfferUp, which is another one of the new sites, you know, getting to know the people who are selling what they're doing, they're all really helpful. Um, And then the other place that I found really interesting, and I didn't get into this on, in the book as much, but Facebook has become such a critical part of selling secondhand globally. And it will be people going to, you know, say groups in their neighborhood saying, I've got this sofa. Does anybody want to buy it? And mm-hmm. this has sort of become a, a, a really critical way for people to start moving objects between each other. And again, start their own businesses. It's now gotten to the point where you have secondhand shops, I know, in the United States where they're live streaming clothing auctions, secondhand clothing auctions for people. Oh, you know, cool. somebody can do that from their own bedroom. So, you know, yeah. look at these things. All these computerized tools and the social media is such a marvelous platform for buying and selling and, and, and getting to know about the stuff that we all generate. And I think those are great ways to get in. Absolutely. Yeah, my friend, he's an older guy and he drywalled my basement and he goes on Facebook all the time. and 
he got an old toilet off of there. Like it was nice and clean. Yeah. Right. So he's looking for construction parks all the time because he's like doing people's basements and and refurbishing their homes and stuff like that. Right. So he's getting a lot of his supplies from Facebook, just from other construction guys that are like, hey, I, you know, I did a yeah. job. I've got this stuff left over and then it moves. So it's uh, it's funny to think of like the older male demographic construction worker guy <laughs> that's that's definitely using Facebook yeah. for that network too. So <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and you may not have been in it, you know, 15 years ago, but now Facebook makes it so easy to find the things and sell the things with the people who are interested in them and interested in having them. Yeah, he was a truck driver before. So I wonder yeah, there you go. I wonder if he would have got into that kind of carpentry and and stuff without Facebook. I don't know. Interesting. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Well, Adam, this has been so great to talk to you and your book was really cool to read through and I really liked how you you made the people approachable. Like I felt like the people you were writing about were my friends. I don't know. You have this like gift of writing or something to do that. Like it. Oh, thank you, you so much. That means a lot. Yeah, it was like witty, and you know, you made me laugh sometimes with the characters, and they just seem like really good people. You know, it was nice. Thank you so much. That really, that's really meaningful to me. Yeah. And so the book is called Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale, and it's on Amazon, right? I can see it there. Yes. Yeah, so if you want to check that out, you can go on Amazon and and look that up, Adam Minter. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show, and thanks for all the work that you do in the secondhand industry because it's very good for people and the economy and the environment. It's all wrapped in, and I think you do a nice job of packaging that all up. Well, thanks for having me on the show, and what a cool thing you do with your life. Thank you. That was Adam Minter, author of the book Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. Did you know you can now find our episodes on YouTube? If you have a YouTube account, please like, subscribe, and comment on there. And if you haven't given us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, please do so. It helps the algorithms push our show up in search results, which means more people will discover the show and more zero-waste solutions will be shared around the world from our amazing guests that we've had on the show. I'm a volunteer at my local college radio station, and I don't make very much money, so if you have a few bucks to spare each month, you can sign up and be a patron on Podbean. There's a little reward button you can click on there. I'm also on Patreon, but I want to keep all my content free for everyone instead of putting it behind a paywall, so... You also can donate directly on the show's website, zerowastecountdown.com. We are a registered nonprofit in Canada called the Zero Waste Countdown Initiative. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks to our listeners in America, Canada, Germany, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Spain, and wherever else you're tuning in from. Together, we're going to change the world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.